pick up your pitchfork or your torch and you try to run me out and start yelling, heretic, heretic, just think with me for a minute. Um, Jesus only had the Old Testament, right? When he was on earth, when he taught and preached and healed, he quoted from it constantly, and there's no mention of hell in the Old Testament. Over the next few weeks, we're talking about heaven and hell, misconceptions about both. And uh, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this. There's no mention of hell in the Old Testament. And that means the first, um, the first New Testament book of the Bible was written around 50 AD. So for at least 20 years, the Bible the apostles had, that the early church had, the Old Testament had no mention of hell. Two-thirds of your Bible doesn't mention hell. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a hell. After all, the Old Testament doesn't mention church, and we're sitting in church, right? So just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But it does mean we probably overemphasize something that two-thirds of the Bible didn't even talk about. Now, you might be like Alex, I have a King James Version of the Bible, and there's 31 mentions of hell in the Old Testament. They translate this Hebrew word, sheol, into hell. Oh, yeah, you missed my great heretic slide. I'm really proud of that one. Um, <laughs> So they translate the word seal 31 times as grave. Sean, I'm so thankful for your work on this slide. Um, and 31 times as hell. If you have a King James translation, if you have any other translation of the Bible, you'll see that uh, that seal is translated as grave, pit, underworld, or simply they're not quite sure how to translate it, so they just say seal. Now I know seal sounds like it's a Ghostbusters villain, uh, but the Hebrew word literally means never satisfied, never full, always hungry. Um, I thought about in my original notes, I kept rewriting this sermon, but I thought in my original notes that I'd sing a little piece of never be satisfied from Hamilton, but the last time I sang a Hamilton song here, everybody made fun of me, and so I'm not going to sing any more Hamilton songs. No, it's your loss, one more Hamilton song. Um, but in the Hebrew poetic imagination, Sheol, or the grave, was always hungry for more. No matter how many people died, Sheol was never full. It was always hungry. Most scholars think that the Old Testament descriptions we have of Sheol as dark, interconnected caves underground aren't trying to paint an accurate picture of the afterlife for us, but instead is trying to capture in poetic terms the inevitability of death and the fact that some form of life continues after death. So, no mention of hell in the Old Testament, but there is this weird mention of Sheol. And what is it? And how does that affect how we think about heaven and hell? Sheol is a really weird concept for us as modern Westerners. We don't think about this, like being buried in the tombs of our ancestors, and they're all interconnected in some way. The Old Testament assumes that everyone, the righteous and the wicked, will go to Sheol, the grave, the underworld. The grave is the inescapable destiny of us all. And just a quick reminder, you and I, one day we will all die. Aren't you glad you came today? You didn't put that encouraging word right there. Sorry about that. Um, but it's just a reality. Now, while there is no mention of hell in the Old Testament, there are many mentions of judgment. Um, Sheol was seen as a place where justice would be done, especially justice that had been avoided in life. As modern Westerners, we don't like to think about judgment. We prefer for God not to judge it at all. We think we would prefer a God who says, everyone's off the hook, just do whatever you want, there's no consequences. But if God is who he says he is, I think he has both a right and a responsibility to judge evil. 
A God who turns a blind eye to evil is evil. That's exactly what people are demanding when they say, how can a loving God let cancer continue? Or how can a loving God let COVID continue? Or how can a loving God let wars or diseases or poverty continue? Something inside of us, we want God to judge evil. Just not the evil in us or in the people that we care about. Like, we're like, just judge the evil out there, not the evil in here. For the ancient Israelites, though, judgment was hope. They looked at the afterlife so much differently than we do. We look and we're like, man, I hope I end up in the good place and not the bad place. God, I hope he doesn't, like, put me in the wrong place. The ancient Israelites, they looked forward to judgment, not with fear, but with hope. They longed for it. In their eyes, judgment meant the rich who took advantage of them, the powerful who oppressed them, and the influential who controlled them would finally be held accountable. Uh, sometimes in the West, we say things like, I could never believe in a God who punished people for their behavior. In the East, they said things like this. Let's look at Psalms 49, which is going to be our text this morning. Psalms 49, verses 13 through 20. This is the way of those who are arrogant and of their followers, who approve of everything they say. Like sheep, they're headed for shield. Death will shepherd over them. The upright will roll over them in the morning. Their forms will waste away in shield, far from their lofty houses where they live. But God will redeem me from the power of shield. He will take me. Do not be afraid when a person gets rich, when the wealth of the house increases. For when they die, they don't need to take any of that with them. Their wealth will not follow them to the grave. Though he blesses himself during his lifetime, and you're really acclaimed when you do well for yourself, he will go to the generation of his ancestors. They will never see the light. Mankind with all his assets, all his possessions, but without understanding, is just like an animal that perishes. Now there's 65 mentions of Sheol in the Old Testament. This is one of them. The Psalms talk about it a lot, but it also comes up in the prophets and in the first five books of the Bible. Um, the author is expressing what many of us have probably felt. How come there are people who are so evil and so wicked and so comfortable, right? We see people who are really rich, really well off. You think about something that you want and you don't have, and they just seem to have it in abundance, and you think, that's not fair, that's not right. How come sometimes those trying to do the right things suffer or have things hard when those who are evil or rich and live comfortable lives? Anybody ever ask that question? I mean, and if you haven't, just live a little bit more. You, there'll be some point where you will. I've asked that question a lot. Working here at the Art Center on the main line, I ask that question a lot as I encounter very, um, very well-off people who sometimes treat the other people around them very poorly. Maybe there's a VP at your company who you know cheats on their spouse, but they keep getting promotion after promotion. You're like, that's not right, that's not fair. Or maybe you know someone who treats their employees like garbage, but their network keeps growing and growing. And sometimes, maybe you thought this, you think, what's the point of doing the right thing if doing what's wrong actually gets you ahead in life? You ever think that? There's been times where I'm like, okay, well, if I want to get ahead, I just need to be a manipulative, controlling jerk, and, you know, I can get what I want. And that seems to work in our world. But we have to remember, we currently live in an evil kingdom where power and money and manipulation can get you success. But if we're followers of Jesus, we're actually citizens of a coming kingdom where those methods will be judged and justice will be done. The psalmist would say to us, okay, there are evil people who are living comfortably and they have things, but 
power and manipulating people, but we're all heading to Sheol. We're all heading to the grave, and all these things will be sorted out. Don't get distressed when the wicked prosper. Justice will be done. In Sheol, you can't buy your way out of judgment or talk your way out of it. God will do what is right. If you go back to earlier in Psalm 49, uh, it says in verse 6, They trust in their wealth and they boast of their abundant riches, yet these cannot redeem a person or pay a ransom to God. The price of redeeming him is too costly. One should forever stop crying so that they may live forever and not see the pit. All their money, all their ways that they've managed to get powerful and successful in this wicked kingdom won't work in the next. Jesus, in his introduction to his way of life and that he presents to people on the Sermon on the Mount, tells this little poem about who gets into his kingdom. We call it the Beatitudes. If you're ever reading through the Bible and you read the Sermon on the Mount, it starts with this little section called the Beatitudes. Um, he says, happy are the poor, the sad, the humble, the hungry, the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted, because his coming kingdom is for them. And then he said, this is what my kingdom is going to look at like. And he describes this way of life that he invites us into on the Sermon on the Mount. But he says, all these people that the current kingdom chewed up and spat out in my coming kingdom are going to be VIPs. In contrast, this is what Jesus said to those who are rich. In Luke 6, 24, woe to you who are rich now because this kingdom is passing away and your comfort with it. See, judgment for the oppressed is good news. If you're currently oppressed in this kingdom, judgment will be good news. But judgment for the oppressor was very bad news. And it's easy for us to hear that and read that and think, okay, man, good thing I'm not rich, right? This has to be with somebody else. But remember, the average American earns 10 times what the average person in the world earns. The average person in the world earns $2,100 a year. Not a month, not a quarter, a year. And I'm going to assume that most of us make more than that. We probably made even more than 10 times uh, $2,100 a year. Jesus was talking to us. And so we have to stop and wrestle with this and think about this a little bit. See, the poor persecuted Jews throughout history looked forward to the day that God brought judgment to the rich and the powerful who treated them as worthless. As one of my Jewish friends, a couple told me, being a Jew has meant throughout history that someone always wants to screw you over. Um, the, not the most elegant way to put it, but if you look at the history of the Jewish people, that's true. Someone's always trying to destroy them, oppress them, and crush them. But their hope was that in death, justice would be done. The oppressor would be held accountable. It's just a different way of looking at death and the afterlife than most of the time we do as Westerners. We're like, where am I going to head? The good place or the bad place? And for them, they were like, finally, justice will be done. Judgment will happen. The oppressed will finally get what they deserve. Now, how do you do it? Like, this isn't a real life, you know, like, fun, punchy sermon, is it? We tend to get anxious when we talk about judgment and justice as much. So stay with me. I know it's heavy. I know it's hard. Um, I naturally start asking when people start talking about judgment and justice, I started asking questions like, yeah, but what will God do in this scenario? And what will he do in that scenario? And what will he do in here? And what will he do there? I mean, if, if God does X, it's not fair for him to do Y. Like, I need all the answers and I need to work it all out. The problem with all this is 
we assume many times that we are more just than Jesus. That we are better judges than Jesus. We aren't. Jesus is always more just, he's more fair, and he's more loving than you and I are. And so, anytime I start asking questions about, yeah, but what's he going to do in this scenario? What's he going to do in this scenario? I have to remind myself, God's more just than me. He's more fair than me. He's more loving than me. In Genesis 18.25, there's this rhetorical question. And it's the lens through which I ask all these hard questions about life and death and afterlife. Genesis 18.25 asks this rhetorical question. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? See, God is the judge of the whole earth. And he's going to do what's right. Everything God does in the afterlife will be fair and balanced and just. The ancient Israelites in the Old Testament, they expected that and they looked forward to it, not with fear, but with faith. That's who he is. They expect him to do what is right. We don't have all the answers. He hasn't told us very much about the afterlife. That's what we're going to see over and over again in our study on heaven and hell over the next few weeks. Is we get these little tiny glimpses, but we really want to have a whole bunch of answers. And he just talks about it every once in a while. But what he does spend a lot of time talking about in the Bible is who he is and letting us know that he can be trusted even if he doesn't give us all the clear answers that we want. We can trust who he is and his character and how he acts. If God is a just judge, it also means that I don't have to fight to get revenge when I am wrong. I can turn the other cheek because I know God will act justly. He will avenge the wrong. Uh, both in the New and Old Testaments, there's this verse that is repeated that says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Don't go out looking for vengeance. I'm going to take care of things because I'm a just God. Forgiveness doesn't mean you weren't wrong. It just means you realize that you're not judge. God is. And that you trust the judge, God, to do what is right. That you don't have to take it into your own hands because he has it. Uh, maybe there's somebody in your life who has hurt you. Hurt you desperately, hurt you deeply, abused you, or manipulated you, treated you like disposable trash. Everything inside of us as humans wants to make them pay. Uh, there's a, we rent some parking spaces out here to some affluent kids who go to the Hapsburg Boys School. Um, it's about $50,000 a year to go to school over there. And so these kids are very wealthy, you know, kindergarten through high school. Um, and so we rent a couple of our parking spaces here. And it's my job as a staff member to make sure that they pay and that they park in the right places and that they're, you know, they're, they're obeying our rules here. Um, there's this one kid who just literally drives me insane. Like, he, uh, uh, he's cussed me out many times. He'll refuse to pay. He won't listen to the instructions I give him. When I tell him to do something, he'll say, I have a lot of money. I can do whatever I want. And you can't do anything about it. And, um, and so far, that's been true. He, he's been able to just buy his way out of everything he wants. And I'm like, Lord Jesus, I want to scratch his car so bad. <laughs> like, I'm throwing away a bucket of paint, and I'm like, I could just miss the trash can and throw this bucket right here, you know? Um, this is proof that Jesus works inside the hearts of people. But there's something in us, right, as humans, that we want people to pay. When they're doing something wrong, when they're trying to use their power and their influence and their money to take advantage and not play fair, we want to make them pay. But if we believe God is a just God, I can say, you know what? He's going to do what's right. 
I can forgive. I can let go. I can say, you know what? I trust that God is just, that he sees me, that he knows what is happening. He knows what they did. We don't have to make sure they pay. We don't have to see them get punishment. We love to see people who deserve it get punishment. We don't have to see them get punishment because there is a good God who will bring justice, whether it's in this life or in the next. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes from Harry Potter right there. <laughs> then again, maybe we need to repent. It's easy to talk about somebody who's hurt us, right? But maybe we're the oppressor. Maybe we are the oppressed, but the oppressor. Now, before you instantly jump to say, well, I have nothing to repent of, let me remind you of the Mitchell and Webb comedy skit. Um, if you've ever seen it, you've probably seen it as an internet meme of two Nazi soldiers talking to each other, and the one looks over at the other and he's like, Hans, are we the baddies? And uh, you've probably seen somebody post this as a meme on the internet, but go and watch the whole skit, it's hilarious. And we laugh because of course the Nazis are the bad guys, everybody knows that. They're the baddest of the bad. But most villains have a way of convincing themselves that they are actually the heroes of the story, and in our spiritual lives we're no different. See, sometimes we're acting as oppressors, but we tell ourselves that we're the oppressed. We make excuses to protect our comfort, even if that comfort comes at a cost of other people. Your wealth will not follow you into the kingdom that is coming. Your power will not follow you into the kingdom that is coming. Your influence will not follow you into the kingdom that is coming. Only by using what you have to invest in the kingdom that is coming will it not be wasted. Now, while the ancient Jews saw Sheol as the inevitable end for everyone, they also hoped that they might be delivered from it. Do you catch it when we were reading through chapter 49 here? He mentions that, he says, all these people are going to be brought down to Sheol, that's where we're all going to end up, but verse 15, but God will redeem me from the power of Sheol, for he will take me. Throughout the Old Testament, there are these little mentions of a hope that the grave won't be the end of everyone's story, that there might be new life. We find it pop up in the prophets and occasionally in the Psalms. They hoped that there would be a day when Sheol would be ransacked, and the only way in was by dying. Jesus died to get into the grave so that he might conquer death and Sheol from the inside out and take ownership of them and open wide the doors promise of resurrection for everyone else. When John the Apostle sees a vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, 18, Jesus introduces himself to uh, John like this, I am he who lived and died, and behold, I am alive to the eternity of eternities, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. The resurrection of Jesus means he defeated sin and death and shield. He owns the property, and he's left the doors unlocked. Shield means never satisfied, but shield was satisfied in full by the blood on the cross. We aren't just marching to inevitable death now. We're marching towards a resurrection in a new kingdom with a new king where the oppressed will be set free. So to recap, the ancient Israelites believed that life continued after death for everyone but that people should expect justice in the life to come, and some hope for a resurrection as an escape from the cold imagination of life in a tomb. So Sheol leaves us with more questions than answers, but we're going to continue asking questions about heaven and hell over the next few weeks. 
But the most important question I think we should linger on this morning as I close is, can we not trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is right? In the hurt places in our life, in the hurt places in our world, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are good and that we can trust you to do what is right. Thank you that you satisfy the grave that was always hungry for more, and you conquered it, and you took ownership, you have the keys, and you've opened up the grave and said, be free, live in my kingdom. God, thank you for inviting us to become your students, learning how to live and love like you, becoming citizens of your new kingdom that is rushing in. The kingdom of the powerful and the influential, the power, the kingdom of the strong and the oppressor is falling away. God, help us not fall into the 